Welcome to the B'nai B'rith International Podcast. I'm CEO Dan Mariashen. Thank you for tuning in today. And while you're settling in, be sure to visit our website, b'naibrith.org, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. The easiest way to get the latest episode is to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Google Play on your smartphone. We're pleased to welcome back to the podcast today Cheryl Kempler, our art and music specialist here at B'nai B'rith. Cheryl is a wealth of knowledge on many subjects, and today we're going to tap into that by digging into some of the history of B'nai B'rith in Europe and the changes that occurred due to the world wars in the first half of the 20th century. Cheryl, welcome back to the program. Happy to be here. The end of October marks a couple of things for B'nai B'rith. It will begin the start of our 175th anniversary, and uh, it will also be a time when we gather in Prague uh, together with B'nai B'rith Europe to hold a very important leadership meeting. It will be B'nai B'rith Europe's triennial conference uh, and B'nai B'rith's annual leadership forum. So we're going to be meeting in Prague, a city that uh, has so much Jewish history, Put in context for us the history of B'nai B'rith and the history of Prague within it. In other words, when did we begin in Europe and when did the Prague presence of B'nai B'rith come onto the scene? Well, uh, the... As you know, in 1843, a group of men on the Lower East Side started B'nai B'rith here, and about 40 years later, in Germany, which is to be expected, the lodges were initiated on the continent, and they were immediately successful. They followed the same pattern and mission as B'nai B'rith here, but the members in Germany were a class above. They were an extremely elite group of men, and since uh, here in the States, the garages were formed to kind of tell new immigrants about social conventions, business practices. There was no such need there in Germany. These men were had demonstrated philanthropic experience. They were prosperous. They were well-educated. And they began the lodges in Berlin with a mission to disseminate and spread the lodges throughout both Europe and then Asia. Was there a, a strong connection? Of course, no phones, uh, no satellites. What, what kind of what kind of connection did they have in the last quarter of the 19th century with uh, B'nai B'rith in the United States? Well, you know, you think it's, it, was, it would have been impossible the way we act and respond to things, but in fact, they did communicate via long, long letters, some of which had to be translated when they got here to the States. Uh, of course, sometimes telegrams when they were invented, but when the lodge presidents sent their reports, they were in the form of tomes, which were entered into the minutes, sometimes condensed, but often not read aloud. And we knew exactly what was going on in Europe. And these facts were reported in our national publication, which began in 1886 here in the States. And we have been publishing ever since, which is pretty amazing. Now, Europe at that time, large Jewish population, of course, for the Holocaust. Uh, there were millions living in Russia, um, uh, a few million, close to it probably in Poland, um, many hundreds of thousands in Romania. From Germany, where it started in Europe, where did it go next? 
Well, uh, the, the lodges were were um, disseminated through the members in Germany, and ten years later, approximately, the first lodge was initiated in the realm of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. That encompassed many countries that were the province of Austria and Hungary, and now were carved up later after the First World War. The first lodge in what we then called the Austrian district was initiated in 1892 in Pilsen, and then a year later, the first of the Prague lodges were open. That's the year that District 10 was initiated, meaning the Austrian district, which encompassed present-day Austria, Czechoslovakia, and Poland. And where did they meet? Where did they gather in those days? Did they have their own buildings? Did they meet in, in, in synagogues or, or other Jewish communal uh, institutions? They did have headquarters, smallish at first, and then they began to build their own headquarters. And the lodges also liked to build things, uh, create uh, new structures. For example, the lodges in, uh, in Austria and in Czechoslovakia began what was called the Toynbee hall movement. This was not only a place where they had their headquarters and meeting, but it was a place where the general public could come and hear lectures by noted lodge members and others. And compared to the programs of B'nai B'rith in the United States at that time, for example, and B'nai B'rith was growing very rapidly in the United States at that time, um, what kinds of programs, what kinds of activities did B'nai B'rith engage in uh, so many years ago? Well, I must tell you, the, the members of the European lodges and then the Asian lodges were incredibly erudite. They were not only interested in, in philanthropic pro programs, including, of course, education, which was their main focal points, creating new schools and up-to-date schools, but they themselves were interested in medicine, psychology, the arts, sciences, and that is very much reflected in their own publications. As we had a national publication here, they each had their own newsletters. And you can see not only the articles, which cover everything from Oh, the music of Schubert to new advances in medicine and mathematics, but also um, Jewish topics, very erudite and rarefied Jewish topics as well. So these men had to be not only prosperous, uh, medicine, they were doctors, they were lawyers, architects, professors, businessmen, but they had to have some real demonstrated interest in the humanities as well. Was there also the the mission of volunteerism that we had here? You know, not so much. Um, that came later with the advent of new social work systems, both here in the States and in Europe. Uh, Hands-on did not come until the, after 1900, when there was a new philosophy of giving and philanthropy. World War One, a cataclysmic event for the entire world, but certainly for Europe, begins in 1914. Uh, and it goes uh, four years. Um, the United States entered 
somewhat later. What kind of impact did World War I have on B'nai B'rith at a time when, after the war, uh, the map uh, was redrawn uh, all over Europe? Well, let's start with the war. Uh, when 1914 uh, came on the scene, when the war was declared, B'nai B'rith here in the States realized that they had no real mechanism to uh, extend a helping hand to people who were deeply suffering in Europe, so that uh, they got together with other organizations and created, for example, the Joint Distribution Committee, which handled all of that uh, sending food and money to Europe. And the communication with the uh, Central Powers Lodges, that is, Germany and Austria, that continued. Uh, they, the Austrians and the Germans sent incredible articles to B'nai B'rith. We have information about the hospital trains they set up and some real uh, necessary projects, orphanages, which was the big thing there. You can imagine why they need orphanages, because uh, not only was mortality rate high from sickness, but then the war came and many more people died. So there were thousands of uh, parentless children. They had to create these things right away. But then in 1917, when we entered the war, uh, communication stopped for that year that we were in the war. I guess both sides mutually decided that they would not be sending any reports on. Once the war was over, uh, you probably know that in Germany and Austria, uh, people were in dire need, dire need. And uh, they, even our members, who had been prosperous, needed loans. And uh, the Americans stepped up to the plate and sent money to our members. Czechoslovakia, which was the new country carved out of the Habsburg it wasn't so bad there. Um, in fact, we have some amazing documents in our archives written by our uh, vice president here. Uh, oh, well, he was called the secretary at that time. He went to Europe and he wrote reports on the condition of the lodges in all of those countries. And he wrote back that um, Czechoslovakia was well-ordered, uh, financially solvent. Everything was good with them because the war didn't affect the territory so much. So it was the Czech members that reached out to the Germans and Austrians and sent them um, food and money, as did we. And also the Swiss lodges, they, they helped a lot of people in Austria as well, particularly the children. But this was, people don't realize that the 20s, it took um, years for people in Europe to get past the events of the war and get back to normal. Now, another new country that came about as a result of the war was Yugoslavia, and that was another place where we had a, a fairly broad presence of B'nai B'rith. How was it affected there? Well, you know, Yugoslavia was part of District 11, the Orient District, and they had a very strong standing in Yugoslavia. Um, although, of course, at the end of 1918, uh, uh, the the officers of District 11 wrote that this would be the end of philanthropic uh, activities in Asia and Asia Minor because there was no more money in the coffers. But yet, despite the fact that uh, the lodges didn't have as much money as they did before, they did amazing things in Yugoslavia and in other countries as well. They created new schools. They set up soup kitchens to help people. They had 
medical clinics, whatever monies they had, and sometimes you don't know where that came from. This sometimes came from the American Lodge. They had programs. They helped uh, people, refugees in particular. There were a lot of people scattered across Europe. Uh, they helped these people repatriate. If they were Jewish, they got a hand, even if they had been the enemy before. They literally helped them move back to their host countries. Now, in the interwar period, it seems, after 1918, there was this dislocation. But as we move into the 1930s, let's say to 1933, to the, the coming to power of, of Hitler and the Nazis in Germany, um, what was the state of B'nai B'rith in Germany itself. I understand that there were literally over 100 B'nai B'rith lodges in Germany alone, and elsewhere in the area that would soon fall under Nazi domination. Well, there were many, many lodges in Germany, and they certainly did miraculous jobs. But in Berlin and other cities for the first couple of years of the 20s, again, they were in bad shape. There's a remarkable article about uh, the Berlin Lodge members being called into one central location by Dr. Beck, and he said to them, I want you to pledge that you will not commit suicide, because things were so dire that the suicide rate was rising all over Europe, and they had to do that. It took them many years to get back on their feet, but once they did, they still maintained their charities, their old age homes, their mental institutions, which was something that B'nai B'rith had, the nursing schools, they still continued to find monies for this. But once, of course, 1933, uh, Hitler came to power, uh, of course, he began to remove the Jews from their profession, to separate them from their professions. So again, the members needed help. And again, America stepped up to the plate, despite the fact that there was a depression here. Each member pledged an additional dollar in their dues that went directly to German relief. And it was sent to Dr. Beck through, I believe, the Joint Distribution Committee so that he wouldn't go awry. He could use it for people to eat, which is what they really needed. Now, in Czechoslovakia, things were different because there was no Nazi presence there. It was just dormant. They continued to create new lodges. A hundred was what stopped in Berlin. It was in Germany, but in, in Czechoslovakia, six or seven more lodges were created through the 30s. And uh, they were, these people were particularly, the interest in the arts increased. They started what was called the Herder Society, which was an organization for young people who were interested in the arts. They had lectures and readings. Um, they also had many interesting evenings at the lodges where they presented plays and concerts. Um, whereas in Germany, people the membership was declining because people were afraid to go to the meetings or they didn't have money to pay their lodge dues. In Czechoslovakia, the membership was increasing. And between 1930, when there were 1,600 members, and the, when the lodges closed, there were about 1,800 members. So it shows you that there was still a lot of activity there. Also, one thing that the Czech lodges did, and the German lodges as well, but not to such a great extent, they started using their members, uh, organizations devoted to the history of Jews in Czechoslovakia. This was the first time there were ever organized societies for this. And it 
included not only writers and scholars, but members like Solomon Laban, who had created the Jewish Museum in Prague. He was one of, he was, these were people who made inroads in Czechoslovakia about their own history. They published amazing books, big folio-sized books with pictures and engraving, and each member had to pay extra dues for this, and they had to buy the book. The orders of closure. When when was Benebrith ordered uh, to close, or when was it closed down, forcibly closed down, in Germany, in um, uh, Czechoslovakia, and and in Poland? Well, there was uh, in Germany. Some lodges closed immediately in 1933. They didn't want any trouble, so they closed immediately. Other lodges stayed on, despite the fact that there were certain lodges were targeted. For example, if the Nazis wanted their headquarters for their own uh, military uh, administration or the Hitler Youth, they'd find a way to close the lodges. Uh, but Dr. Beck, as you probably remember, was told to close the lodges, and he said, not until you force me. This occurred in 1937 when there was a general raid on all the lodges uh, throughout Germany, uh, in Poland and in Austria and in uh, Czechoslovakia, happened about a year later. Uh, but in Germany, uh, you know, it's interesting to see not every region in Germany was Nazified immediately. So a lot of the lodges stayed open and were active because the political leaders in that region didn't want them to close. I mean, that would mean they were taking care of the elderly, they were taking care of the mentally defective uh, children, so the, they didn't want these people, you know, t on their coffers. Now... In, in the 30s, those Czech Jews who were able to get out, uh, many of them came to New York, and a lodge was created in New York. Was it in the late 30s by these refugees, or was it created after the war? It was called the Joseph Popper Lodge. I remember I was invited once or twice to, to speak at, at their meetings. Um, when did that happen? And I understand that their activity continued on for many years. There were actually two Czech lodges in New York, the Popper Lodge and the Liberty Lodge. And they uh, were organized around 1944. They continued their activities into the 60s when they joined forces again to revive this society which was dedicated to the history of Czech Jews. And they began to publish books again, uh, large books, books of scholarly essays. So they had this mission in front of them and they continued it. And I believe they were still active just until a few years ago. And with that, after 1945 came communist rule in all of Eastern Europe, in some of Central Europe, um, and um, B'nai B'rith was really dormant uh, for all of those years until the fall of communism in 1989 in Eastern Europe, when, little by little, going back to some of the places, not every one, of course, because of the situation of there being very small Jewish. Jewish communities in some places, but lodges were recreated, and I was uh, really very honored and privileged to have been present 
for the reopening of the lodge in Prague, I think in 1992. And of course, that uh, that lodge continues to the present day, as do lodges in other places in Eastern Europe where it had been closed and where it had, there had been no activity uh, really since uh, the late 1930s. And uh, it is that lodge which... Um, We'll be hosting uh, our meeting in Prague where we will bring together the leaders of B'nai Europe and B'nai in the United States uh, at the end of October. Well, Cheryl, thank you uh, for joining us. Really, uh, it's always a pleasure to learn of the rich history of our organization uh, and um, as we enter, especially as we enter our 175th year, we're sure there's a lot more to mine from those archives and the vaults and we would be pleased to have you come back to talk about more of uh, the history of B'nai B'rith. Thank you for having me. Uh, well, thanks, everybody, for joining us again for the B'nabrith International Podcast. Please visit our website, b'nabrith.org, like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, subscribe on your smartphone through the Apple Podcasts app for iPhone or through Google Play for Android. And lastly, be sure to tell a friend about it. For Cheryl Kempler, I'm Dan Mary Ashen. We'll talk to you next time on the B'nabrith International Podcast.